0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message.
1: Today we will be in Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is six, six, six. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, and uh, Lord, as this section is a heavy section, you have a heavy word for us, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would do your work, the work that you have for this particular portion of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us, as that passage says, to endure. There's a call for the endurance of the saints, and Lord, we pray that we would endure, even as my brother David was talking about today, just the, the difficulties of life and uh the need to persevere, Lord. You are preserving your people. You've promised to. You promised that you will not let any one of us slip from your hand. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And we know, Lord, that you have charged us with caring for our own hearts, to be in your word, to be aware, to be awake, to be alert to the things in this world. And Lord, we pray that you do that for us now. We pray that we would do that and endure in hope of the great victory we see in the book of Revelation, that your son, Jesus, will return and make all things new. And in this, we hope in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to be in several different parts of Revelation this morning. It's going to feel a little bit like uh, you've been on a family vacation and uh, the kids all want to stop at different sites and look around and The dad, which would be me, is like, we don't have time, you know, and you just keep driving. And the reason for that is, is that we're doing kind of a quick flyover over Revelation because I don't want you to miss like the big themes of Revelation. There's so many things that we could get drawn into in details that we can miss the big picture. Both are needed, right? Both are needed. We need study that's going to be in depth and in details, but we also need the big picture. And a lot of times having the big picture helps us to do the study in detail. And so we're going to cover big portions of scripture. We're going to do a lot of 13. We'll do some of 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, lots of it, okay? Um, and I'm not going to go into certain details that I know you guys would want. Like, I know you guys are really hoping that I'll calculate for you this morning the number 666 and, and who it is and everything. And I'm not going to do that this morning for a couple reasons. For one, I'm not entirely sure, okay? And for another reason, I have never heard a message on that that left its hearers uh, better off than when they came in. Okay, and so I'm sure those messages exist. You'll probably send them to me. That'd be fine. But uh, what we're going to do is try to get a big picture. And the big picture I want to give you guys this morning is I want to give you the big picture of how Satan attacks God's people. I think this is very helpful for us. Remember in chapter 12, last week, Satan was described as a dragon who tried to consume Christ, but when he couldn't, he went off to make war with the people of God in the wilderness. In, in the next few chapters, we see that, that Satan attacks God's people in three main ways. And the whole purpose of seeing these ways of attack is in verse 10. It's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. We're helped to endure when we see the ways that we might be attacked by the enemy uh, by seeing that the things that he offers us are far weaker than the things that Christ offers us. And that Jesus is better than anything in this world. And when we see those things, we will be given strength to endure. So we're going to look at three lines of attack that Satan takes in the last half of the book of Revelation towards God's people. And the first one is the beast or worshiping political power. So the first attack that we see Satan taking is through totalitarian power. Take a look again at verse uh, 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems On its horns, and blasphemous names written on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like bears' feet, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and his authority to it. Satan attacks Christians through totalitarian power. Notice here that the beast, it says, comes out of the sea. In in Old Testament thought, the sea, the chaotic, wavy sea, was a place of chaos and godless forces. Forces against God would come up out of the sea. Notice that this this beast has immense power. It says that he has seven horns. Horns are a symbol of power and ten diadems. We know that this beast represents some sort of political power because this image is taken from Daniel 7 and all the the beasts that come out of the sea in Daniel 7 were national powers. And and John tells us that whoever this totalitarian leader is, it gets its power directly from Satan. You see that in verse 2. And this makes a lot of sense. When we look at the history and we think of different totalitarian powers that have come, taken over nations, have, have brutalized our people throughout the centuries... Um, it makes total sense that their powers come from Satan. I mean, you look at some of these leaders and you think, how did people end up following this person? How did this person, was it, how was he able to sway the masses like this? How was he able to take a country that was, you know, a, basically a good country and turn it into this? And, and we see from verse 2 that Satan himself gives power to totalitarian leaders. You'll notice here in this passage as well that these totalitarian leaders, they demand worship. And they get that either through indoctrination or through fear. And we see both here. Take a look at verse three. We see that the beast has a a pattern of indoctrination to get people to follow him. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound and its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled and followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon that had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? right? And so there's this um, kind of pattern of getting people to believe in a particular leader and and him showing. And and in some ways, he's kind of trying to reproduce what Christ did in the resurrection here by looking like he is unstoppable, incomparable. This beast character demands authority and honor that belongs only to God. So some people drink the Kool-Aid, right? And they follow the beast and others cave in out of fear of death. Look at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. There are two kinds of people in this chapter. And there's two kinds of people throughout the whole book of Revelation. There's, there's the saints, which are those who worship God alone. And then there's what's called the earth dwellers those who dwell on the earth. That term earth dweller is kind of a technical term throughout Revelation for those who do not follow the Lamb, for those who worship worldly powers. The first century Christians that read this letter, we don't want to forget about them, they would have seen in this chapter a particular beast that they dealt with. And the beast that they dealt with was the emperor Domitian. Domitian demanded worship. He actually demanded to be called son of God, savior, lord, and king of kings. You imagine living in a place where the ruler demands that you call him Son of God, Savior, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and you're a Christian? These are the blasphemous names it talks about in verse 1. And those who refused could either be cut off from, from society or they could be killed. And one of the common ways in the Roman Empire that these original readers would have been cut off from society is they would have been kicked out of commerce. They would have been kicked out of trade guilds. Perhaps you know, you're a carpenter, or perhaps you work with metal, or something like that. There were these trade guilds, and these trade guilds would actually have gods over them. And you would have to worship that god. Sometimes it was the emperor you had to worship to be a part of it. So it was a real mixture, not just of church and state, but of work and church. That there was a, a worship that was required of you to be a part of, of these trade guilds and be able to trade. And I think that's what they would have heard when they read verse 16 which says also it caused all both small and great rich and poor free and slave to be marked on their right hand and their forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he was marked. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast and the number is six, six, six. I don't think that this is likely to be a literal number tattooed on the skin. Remember back to chapter 7, do you remember the mark that believers had on their foreheads? That wasn't a literal mark. What was it? It was a way of God marking out his people in chapter 7, that they were marked on their foreheads. It comes from Ezekiel 9, where before God went through the city and judged it, he had an angel actually mark on the foreheads all of his people. It even think, makes you think back to Exodus, right? How, how the blood was on the doorposts of the homes. That God marks out his people. He knows those are his. I think there's something really similar going on here. That this mark is just a way of saying that those who worship the beast or worship God are plainly known to him as if it's stamped on their foreheads. Um, remember in chapter 2 in the city of Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, that when they were offered the choice of either you have to worship the emperor or die, Antipas, he chose death. A generation later in Smyrna, when their pastor Polycarp was given the choice of whether to worship the emperor or die, we saw that he chose death as well. Guys, this text reminds us something that we tend to forget, which is there have been many times in many places in history where it was literally impossible to live there as a Christian. That it was literally impossible to live in those places without renouncing Christ and worshiping the beast. There have been many times in history like that. There have been many times in our history recently like that. And the 20th century was a time like that. Can you even fathom the 20th century? We had Adolf Hitler. We had Joseph Stalin. We had Mao. We had Pol Pot and others <laughs> all in one century. These were places where you either worshiped the state, you worshiped the leader, or you died. There were no options. And our people have lived through that in recent history. Even right now, guys, do you guys realize that there's brothers and sisters of ours who face attacks, like an attack of the beast like this, in places like North Korea is a place like that. You worship the beast, or you hide out, or you die, right? Same thing in Afghanistan or Eritrea. There's tons of countries like that, where our people, not only can they not gather like we're gathering, but they can't even exist if they're found out to not be worshiping the state. I believe that something like this will get larger. There'll be something like this globally right before Christ returns. I don't know if we'll be alive for that or not. If you are alive for that, if I'm alive for that, we have really clear orders from the book of Revelation, which is resist unto death. There's nothing short of that. There's no other option, right? Right. It's worship the beast or die. It's die, right? Jesus made it really clear in Matthew 10 28. Do not fear him who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We have to be prepared for that. I'm not going to say that that's something that I think, you know, I'm not going to tell you, well, these events are happening and I'm reading the newspaper, I'm seeing these things. No one's reading the newspaper. I'm online and I'm seeing all these signs, you know, and and this is what's happening. I'm not saying that, but we do have have to have hearts that are ready to follow Christ even unto death. He's worth it, amen? He's worth it. But you know, we don't even have to live in a country like that to have the kind of heart that worships the beast. Because you think about totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is a worship disorder, right? It's a worship disorder. Totalitarians flourish where people look to the state Or to a political leader to give them something only God can give, right? We think about totalitarian states. Those are places where people are looking to a leader to give them something only God can give them. It's a heart that looks to leader or government as their savior. That looks to a leader or government for their safety and security and prosperity, right? It's a a looking to humans to give you something only God can give. Or... It's people that are so fearful of those leaders that they're willing to obey its lies. That's the kind of heart, guys, that worships the beast and takes its mark. And I think we all need to think about that in ourselves. Do we have that kind of heart to where we're looking to others to give us something that only God can give? It's a dangerous place to be. And when you look at some of these totalitarian states, you're seeing that in mass. Many people believing that a person can give them what only God can give. Worshiping God, guys, is the resistance. If you look at the next chapter, chapter 14, it's a worship service, right? And that's to show us what's the option. The option is that we would worship these political powers or that we would worship God. Resistance looks like worship. We worship God. We don't worship any leader. We don't worship the state. We don't expect them to give us something that only God can give. And we don't fear any leader like we fear God. I think this is an important thing when we're thinking about during this time, right? Think about the time of election and things like that. These people can be so big in our minds. They can get as big as God in our minds, right? Whether it's your person that you think can solve everything, and that person's super big in your minds, or that uh, the opposite, the person that if they got in there would ruin everything. You know, the person that is so big that this is my fear. Guys, we only give our hopes and our fears to God. He's the only one that deserves our worship and our fear. We shouldn't give it to anyone else. I heard someone say, you know, Give your candidate your vote, but don't give him your heart, right? So our fear and our worship, our trust, our obedience, and our terror only belong to God himself. So that's the first line of attack. Now, the second line of attack is more subtle. And the second line of attack is the false prophet. The second line of attack is Satan trying to to take our worship away from Christ through religious deception. Take a look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. And it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon and it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down out of heaven to earth in front of people and by its signs, it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceived all who dwelled on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast might speak and might cause those who did not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This second beast later in the book is called the false prophet. And he represents religious deception. And notice in verse 11 that he looks like the lamb. See that? He's got like two horns. He looks like a lamb. He tries to look like Jesus, right? He tries to look like lamb. Or he tries at least to look like he's with Jesus. And notice in verse 13, he's able to do miraculous signs. I think it's something important for us to remember, and Jesus told us this again and again, is that somebody's ability to do miraculous signs does not mean they're from him, okay? It's very important to realize. Um, He also warned us that people would say that he was here or he was there and did not believe them because he's going to come very obviously from the sky. But this person is is or this force is trying to look like the lamb. So if the first beast is trying to steal our worship through fear and intimidation, the second beast is trying to f- steal our worship through deception. And those first century Christians, once again, they would have dealt with this kind of thing, with false teaching. You know, they were pressured, like I said, to worship other gods, just to be a part of society and make a living and exist. And there were some in the church, especially in the church of Thyatira, we see, that that were encouraging Christians saying, you know what's okay? You know, if you need to be involved in some pagan festival or feast or whatever to stay in your line of work, go ahead. It's okay. You can still be a Christian. This, this false prophet kind of thing is alive and well today, isn't it? You guys see the deception, don't you? You guys are Bible believing people. You see the deception. You know, there's many so-called Christians today who openly sow doubts about the virgin birth, the existence of hell, the deity of Christ, the reliability of the Bible, its teachings on sexuality and marriage guys, these are very basic beliefs of Christianity. You know, and I think it's so interesting to me when you see on social media, um, you see people reposting certain teachers and stuff that openly sow doubts about these things. I've even seen in our church, you know, before when I was on social media, I'd see people posting articles and stuff. And I'm like, do they not know that this person openly sows doubts about those things? Basic things, guys. And if there's teachers out there and there's Christians out there that don't believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the existence of hell and the reliability of the Bible and its teachings on sexuality and marriage, you could just have a different religion, but don't call it Christianity. You can't take the foundational things right out and still call it the thing. But that's what the false prophet does. The false prophet looks like a lamb. It's like, oh no, I'm a follower of Jesus, but which Jesus, right? Which Jesus? Here's the creepy thing. You could, according to this book, you could be thinking that you're worshiping the true God and all along be worshiping the devil instead. How would you know? This deception is strong. How would you know? Verse 11 shows it says that the false prophet looks like a lamb, but what? Speaks like a dragon. How do you know? You know by its teaching, right? You know by its teaching. Guys, I would just implore you, especially these days, especially with everybody just kind of sharing different teachings and stuff because they felt right to you, test everything by the word of God, guys. You actually have a Bible. You know, you actually have a Bible on your phone. You actually could Google a Bible. Like, you have a Bible. Test everything by scripture. Not by what you think the Bible kind of says, okay? Be like, well, I think the Bible says something. No, look. You could look. You could look at the actual words. You don't have to kind of dig into your mind and think, well, I think the Bible said something like that, right? You can see what it actually says. Often false teaching, especially the kind you see online, has this vague air of what Jesus would say or would have said or wouldn't have said about something, which is so strange that we would just trust this kind of impression we have of what kind of person Jesus is, and then we would test teaching by that when we have what he actually did say right? And so, you know, when you see these teachings and you go, yeah, I think that's kind of in line with the spirit of Jesus. It's a pretty weak way to go, right? Which Jesus? The Jesus of your imagination? The Jesus of the false prophet? He looks like a lamb, but on closer inspection with an open Bible, you go, whoa, he sounds like the dragon. And the only way we're going to know guys is by scripture. Guys, a bible Christianity is easily a Christless Christianity, right? A Bibleist Christianity will not last long following Jesus. Uh, a Jesus of our imagination that just happens to agree with me on everything. It's amazing. It's amazing that Jesus in my mind is nodding and agreeing with everything I think. <laughs> That's the first sign that you're not dealing with the real Jesus. Because as you see, the disciples and when they hung out with them, he didn't nod and agree with everything they thought, right? He was constantly challenging them. If you're constantly kind of coming up against what Jesus says, you must be in the word because that's the way he was. So that's what the false prophet's all about. He wants to swap out God. So you hear you are worshiping God, and he wants to swap God out for a false one without you even noticing. That's what he does. That's what he's about. And that's why it's vital to know the word, guys. The word of God is your protection against the false prophet. Um, this is the way to know. And I was thinking about this morning. This is kind of an interesting thing. Remember the Mark of the Beast thing? I know you guys want me to talk more about that. Remember the Mark of the Beast thing? You remember like where the Mark of the Beast was? It was on forehead and hand? Can you guys think back in the Old Testament to something that the Israelites were told to put on their foreheads and on their hands? You remember? Take a listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you, you shall have today on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house. You shall, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And then listen to this. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and between the frontlets of your eyes. As God's word is your protection against these things. So I think we can be very consumed about all the details. One of the most important things is that we're consistently in the word. And then we have another subtle attack. The third attack, which is also very subtle, is Babylon. For this you're gonna have to go to chapter seventeen. The third line of attack against the church is through materialistic seduction. So you have kind of the kind of totalitarian leader, you have religious deception, and then you have thirdly, you have materialistic seduction. Take a look at Revelation seventeen, verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters and whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of her sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and in scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of a great mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The third line of attack here is materialistic seduction. John here calls this line of attack Babylon. Um, Babylon, as you'll remember, was Israel's ancient enemy, right? Babylon is the one that like destroyed their temple, put them in captivity for 70 years, like major level enemy known for idolatry, known as one who would uh, seduce the nations into idolatry. Now, Babylon, though, guys, was gone for a long time. It was over five centuries before it was destroyed. And so John is using the city of Babylon as a symbol for the idolatrous culture. There's two cities, guys. When you look at the end of Revelation, there's two cities in the book of Revelation. There's the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven. And then there's Babylon, the culture that's here on earth. And they're described as two women. New Jerusalem is described as a bride, the bride of Christ, the bride of God. And then you have Babylon that's described here as a prostitute. You have the the city of God in heaven, and then you have the city of man on earth. And every single person, including every single one of us, lives as a citizen of one or the other city. There's a tale of two different cities here. Babylon looks beautiful. Take a look at verse 4. She looks like a woman that's in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. But then when you look inside the cup in her hand, it's full of abominations. Babylon here, guys, represents a culture of idolatry. All this talk about sexual morality in this chapter is really the Old Testament's way of talking about idolatry. Certainly, that culture of Babylon has sexual morality. But even deeper, that sexual morality is really a picture of idolatry. Because remember in James 4.4, 4, he, he calls out that church. He says, you're adulterous people. It doesn't mean they're all committing adultery. It means that they're idolatrous. It's a way of calling out idolatry. Um, what is idolatry? Because a lot of times we think, well, it's, you know, statues. I don't do that. i don't bow down to things, right? Idolatry, guys, is looking to anyone or anything other than God for our security approval, control, happiness, or comfort, looking to anyone other than God for our ultimate sense, for like where we really get our security, our approval, our sense of control, our sense of happiness and comfort. That's what idolatry is. And idolatry throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, like here, is described as spiritual adultery because idolatry is cheating on God. God should be our number one love. God should be the one that we find all our worth in. And yet we find it in other creative things. And he takes it as if it's cheating on him. And one of the most common forms of idolatry that we see in the New Testament is uh, trusting in wealth instead of God. And Jesus talks about this a lot, right? You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. That it can become a God for you. Jesus talked extensively about how wealth kind of leads us away from God. It's It's like a magnet that kind of pulls our hearts away from God. And we've all experienced that, right? All of us have lived in times when we were totally broke, totally broke, totally just waiting for each little bit to buy the next thing, to difficulty paying our rent, all those things, right? And we remember how close we walked to the Lord during that time. And then what happens? You, know, you get a little more affluent, you get things a little more under control. And what happens? Your heart drifts away from God. And Jesus talked about this. He talked extensively about how wealth does that. If the beast tries to steal away our worship through fear and intimidation, and the false prophet tries to steal our worship through, through deception, Babylon force tries to steal away our worship through materialistic seduction. That's what Babylon does. And um, for the seven churches, Rome was that kind of place for them. You know, Rome had a lot of wealth, a lot of things to offer. In chapter 18, it calls those things cargo. Take a look at Revelation 18, 12. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth and silk and scarlet and all kinds of scented wood and all kinds of articles of ivory and all kinds of articles of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and oil and wine and fine flour and and wheat, and cattle, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. That's what she had to offer. You see at the end of that list how evil this materialism is. This materialism that, I mean, how evil do you have to be? How idolatrous do you have to be to sell people, right? That's on her list of things she sells. She sells human souls. Our culture, guys, is not free from that kind of evil, is it? Right? We think about what we are willing to do to have the material things we want. Babylon's alive and well today. You guys have probably heard the saying that you should uh, use things and love people, not use people and love things. Right? That's the heart of materialism, right? The heart of materialism is to love things and use people when we should be using things to love people. Materialism, guys, will get you to, to love what you should use and use what you should love whether that's using people in your workplace, whether that's using your family, whether that's even using the Lord himself. I mean, there's a lot of theology right now that would use the Lord, right? To get the things that we really want. Remember the Laodiceans? They were rich, right? They were, they were in touch with Babylon. They were connected with her, right? And they were what? They were lukewarm. They were lukewarm because they were under the materialistic seduction of Of Babylon. Listen to how they talk. They said, I'm rich, I prosper, I need nothing. And Jesus said, No, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're blind, you're naked. It's interesting that, like, for churches like Laodicea, and I think most likely if we were going to be attacked somewhere, this is the place we'd be attacked, is that it wasn't the beast that got to him, it wasn't the false prophet that got to him. They didn't have to. Babylon had already got to him, right? There's three lines of attack here. And I I think we're particularly prone to this. I know I'm particularly prone to this. Guys, we live in a time of unprecedented prosperity, okay? This has been a bummer year, no doubt about it, okay? But we still live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. Believe it or not, you are very likely richer than most of the people that have ever lived. You just realize that? You're like, no, we're kind of struggling. No, you're richer than most of the people that have ever lived, right? I mean, I'll put it to you this way. If you could be in the top 1% of wealthiest people in the first century, would you take it? If you could be in the top 10 richest people in the first century, would you take it? You wouldn't take it, right? Because you'd want to go to the dentist. You'd want air conditioning. You would want antibiotics, right? We are the wealthiest people that have ever lived. Even if we're in the lower end of American culture, we are. How easy it would be to start trusting in that. How easy it would be to find our, our comfort and our control and our security in that. How imperceptible it is to slide into that kind of idolatry, isn't it? You guys feel it? You feel how, how you get numb to God? So maybe we'll never live under like a totalitarian regime with the beast. And maybe we'll never fall for the false prophets, false teaching. But guys, who can, who can endure this attack? This is sneaky. This is subtle. And, and it says in Revelation eighteen four, it says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And you think like, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I come out of Babylon? If I go, okay, yeah, the spirit of Babylon's here, kind of the wealth, the luxury, including the immorality of Babylon is here. How do I not take part in that? What what do you think he's saying? Think he was telling those first century people, you know, you got to move out of the Roman empire, go find somewhere else. Probably not, right? Is he telling us to like, go and move up on a hill somewhere and form a commune? You could, Ellen wants to do it. (laughs) You give me an eyebrow flash. I was like, yeah, she's definitely into that. No, I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. He's talking about what Jesus was talking about, that we need to live in the world, but not of the world, right? So we use money in a different way. We have a cool opportunity to do that, right? With this offering with Cambodia, we have an opportunity to use money in a different way. But we're called to use money in a way that promotes justice and mercy in the world. Jesus told us that not to store up our treasure here, but to store it up in heaven, right? Indicating that you can't hang on to your money no matter what, right? We'll see in a second, Babylon's going down. She's going to disappear in a moment. All your stuff's gone. When you die, all your stuff's gone. When he returns, all your stuff's gone. You can't hang on to it. You can't take it with you in death, right? But you can send it on ahead, right? We can send it on ahead by giving. And so the book of Revelation helps us endure by showing us the attacks of the enemy showing us that everything that offers is weak and that Jesus is better. So what I want to show you real quick, and this is where we drive really fast. I want to show you the destruction of all of these forces in the book of Revelation because it's kind of cool. He introduces the dragon, um, the false prophet, and the beast, and Babylon, and then they get destroyed in reverse order. So right here, Babylon gets destroyed. Babylon's wealth cannot save you. All the wealth and possessions in the world will evaporate in a moment at the coming of Jesus. Take a look at Revelation eighteen, ten. This says, "Alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon! For in a single hour, your judgment has come." And what you see in the context of that is the world, and they're weeping because they trusted in this materialistic thing, and all of a sudden, at the coming of Christ is gone, and they're weeping over it. They're like, "This was everything we had." What's so cool, guys, is that we don't weep because our treasure has just arrived. Jesus Christ himself, and he's going to replace the city of Babylon that's on earth. He's going to replace it with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We'll see that in a few weeks. And then the beast and the false prophet get destroyed at the coming of Jesus. Take a look at Revelation nineteen eleven. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and one who was sit- sit- sitting on the throne on the, on the horse was called faithful and true. from which he'll strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh are written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you drop down to verse 20, it says that he captures the beast and the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs and deceived the world. And it says he throws them into a lake of fire. And what's so cool about this, guys, is that Jesus, who's called faithful and true, he replaces the false prophet. So there's deception in this world, right? There's false teachers in this world. There's a spirit of deception here. Jesus comes. He's faithful and true. He replaces that. He makes the world a place of truth, a place where you can trust the things that you hear. And then Jesus, it says, who's king of kings and lord of lords, he replaces the beast. You guys realize that Jesus is going to replace every ruler on this earth and reign here forever? You guys realize that? Jesus is going to replace every ruler on earth and reign here forever. That sound good? I mean, if you're looking down the ballot in a few weeks, you look down the ballot and you're like, okay, top ones. And you start like browsing the third, you know, the third party candidates. You know, you're down there and you see Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords. You'd be like, ooh, right? Sounds good. But he doesn't need your vote, does he? Right? The father's elected him before the foundation of the world. He will come And he will rule this place and remove all the rulers of this world. And then you have the grand finale, the destruction of Satan himself. And I don't believe these are all different events. I think these are all descriptions of the same thing. They're all three descriptions of his coming and his removing of all evil. And so you see this replay. Take a look at it in chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from prison and he will come out to deceive the nations And at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever." This is a cool picture because Satan makes this one last lunge at the church, right? Makes this one last lunge at God's people. And he's got all the world against them. And then what happens? Not much of a battle, you know? They get all their troops. They're coming out. And then what happens? They're flamed out. It's over. It's amazing. It wouldn't make a great movie battle scene, right? They just get vaporized, right? Satan's presence, guys, is going to be removed from this world. Have you thought about that lately? Can you even imagine what this world is like without evil, without Satan, without sin? He's going to remove it. How'd you like this world without Satan in it? That's going to happen. And not only that, but the throne of Satan on earth is going to be replaced with the throne of God. I have one last scripture reading, and it's Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And then listen to this they will see his face, God's face, you will. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. And there will be no light of the lamp or the sun for the Lord. God will be their light and they will reign forever. That's how it all wraps up. That's the victory. And what happens next week, we'll look at the final judgment of people. Then we're going to look at what heaven is going to be like. But for right now, just marinate in this. Marinate in the victory of God over evil. This isn't just, you know, God did defeat Satan at the cross. This isn't just his defeat. This is his destruction and removal. We can't even imagine what the world's like without sin and Satan and evil. It's going to be amazing. Can you imagine what this place shines like when it doesn't have that? Right? And so the message of Revelation is this. Endure, resist, worship God. Worship God knowing that this is the future coming. Worship God knowing that Christ is better than anything the world has to offer. Worship God knowing that Christ Himself on the cross gives you this perfect future. This is a future you don't deserve. We're going to see next week the final judgment. We don't deserve to be in this place made new. How do we get there? We get there through what the Lord's Supper proclaims. The Lord's Supper proclaims that we're sinners, that we deserve all the judgments in this book, don't we? For our sin, if we were to really be honest about our sin. We deserve all the judgments in this book, and that though we're sinners, Jesus took away our sin. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, he took away your sin. Jesus chose to take all of your idolatry, all of your adulteries against him, all of your sin. Jesus chose to be treated as if he had done them, right? He took the blame, right? He removes the stain. Do you believe that? If you believe that? We'd ask you to take the Lord's Supper with us. You're here and online. We'd ask you to take the Lord's Supper with us if that's what you believe. Let's first take the bread. Hear now the voice of your Savior, the one called faithful and true, the one coming on a white horse to make war, but the one who gave his life on a cross for you. And he says this. This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat and remember it to me. Let's take it together and remember him. Jesus, we stand amazed when we think of this picture of you in Revelation 19, rub-dipped in blood, coming with a sword, coming to rule the nations. We love that. You are our only hope for this world. And we're amazed when we see that picture and we also remember that you also laid down your arms and handed yourself over to evil men to crucify you. And you did that for us, for our sin. Lord, help our consciences to be just completely clear knowing that our sin has been paid for by you. That you stretched out your holy arm and delivered us on the cross. We thank you. Well, let's take the cup. Hear now the words of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but first he bled and died for you. He says this, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Jesus, we thank you that you do not withhold your blood, your very lifeblood. But gave yourself for us. It's amazing love. We have never loved you like that. But you always love us like that. And we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for your plan for the universe. That you have a plan here that we've read a little bit about to display your glory in the nations, to display your glory in history. And it's a gory story. In some parts, it's difficult things to read, difficult things to think about. And yet we trust you. We trust you who so loved the world that you gave your only son for us. We pray, Lord, that your glory would shine. Lord, we pray that your glory would shine through us, through our lives, in our families, in our workplaces. We pray that your glory would shine in this nation among these people that we live with, Lord. We pray that we would be salt and light here. And we look forward to the day when we see your son Jesus coming on the clouds for us. Thank you for that. Love that. Help that to rock our hearts, Lord. Let every one of our decisions be made in light of his coming, of his return and the new world he's bringing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.